Welcome to Equestrian Movement's Fast Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our first Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling, and husbandry, or an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Hey team, Katie here from Equestrian Movement and today we have the great pleasure of talking to Adele Shaw from the Willing Equine. Adele Shaw is an internationally recognized mentor, behavior consultant and trainer focused on creating a positive relationship between horse and human through science-based training and care practices. Drawn to horses labelled as troublemakers and lost causes from an early age, Adele has always had a passion for understanding the why behind behaviour and a deep desire to help horses find their way back to wellness. This holistic approach examines the horse's environment, lifestyle and physical and mental soundness to ensure that the horses are not simply surviving but truly thriving in their life and relationship with their human caretakers. As a teacher, Adele is supportive and understanding of both horse and human and tailors her lessons to provide the most personalized, accessible and ethically minded coaching possible. Her approach goes beyond method. By offering flexible training and care systems, the well-being of the horse and the empowerment of the student always remains the primary goals. In addition to her hands-on work with specialized rehabilitation cases, At her ranch in Texas, Adele maintains an active role in the equestrian community through her clinics, online student programs, courses, blogs, podcasts, and social media outreach. As she connects with students across the globe, Adele remains dedicated to making information on behavioral science, positive reinforcement, lemur principles, human hierarchy, and species-appropriate care practices accessible and achievable for every horse owner through the Willing Equine. You can have a look at more of her resources over at www.thewillingequine.com. You can also find her on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook at The Willing Equine. All the links to places to find her you can find in our show notes. So without further ado, let's kick off today's chat with Adele. Hi Adele, I'm so excited to have you on the show with us today. Would you be able to introduce yourself and what you do? Yes. Uh, so my name is Adele Shaw. I'm uh, located in central Texas, right outside of Austin. I'm a certified horse behavior consultant, and I work with people and horses all over the world and locally, um, helping them create better relationships with their horses and develop a, a common level of respect and dialogue and communication and just having a really enjoyable and fun um 
relationship where they can both really trust each other and experience that relationship together. I also specialize in different behavior cases, whether that has to do with aggression or extreme fear. Um, people call me in kind of for all different kinds of stuff. And that's a lot of fun. That's one of my favorite things to do is really to help owners and caregivers break that down and, and figure out why their horses are acting in certain ways. Uh, I also mentor uh, horse pre- uh, professionals that uh, are aspiring horse professionals and teach online courses and clinics and workshops and all the things. Oh, and I also have a podcast. <laughs> so yeah. there's just all kinds of things that I do. I feel like whenever I introduce myself, I'm like, there's a running, like just sentence after sentence <laughs> of all the things. I'm a little bit spread out. <laughs> uh, we will definitely be sharing all the links to all of your things <laughs> in the show notes so people to follow up with uh, the work that you do. Uh, so Specifically, you like to work with the horses that are labeled difficult and, um, you know, kind of on their last chance. Uh, how did you start out there? Like, what's your background with working with horses? Um, so I started off in, well, like a lot of other young horse people, um, I had, there was a barn down the road. But before, even before that, you know, I loved ponies. Mom, dad, can I have a pony? <laughs> and they were like, um, no. Uh, so I went to summer camps and that's actually where my first kind of experience with the, you know, quote unquote, difficult horses began. Um, I started uh, at a summer camp. It was like a hunter jumper English type summer camp. And there was a horse there that nobody liked. Nobody wanted to ride the horse. Nobody wanted to be around the horse. Um, at the time he was presenting with behavior, like not wanting to move forward under saddle being, uh, he was nipping at or kicking out at, uh, the kids when they would groom him and tack him up, which was probably not a safe thing for a summer camp horse to be doing. But, uh, later on, you know, now I look back and I'm like, man, we were probably dealing with, you know, like listing off all the things I can <laughs> kind of go back and see. But I remember even at the time I was thinking, I want to work with that horse because it's the difficult one, because it's the one that nobody else loves. And so it needs my love. (laughs) So it's a little bit human centric, kind of like, I'm going to go fix this horse and be there for it. It was a little bit ego driven, but it was, it came from a genuine place where I really did want to um, be there for the horse and help the horse. Um, Obviously in a summer camp situation as an eight-year-old that didn't uh, go very far. I didn't get to (laughs) Uh, you know, quote, fix the horse or cure them or anything. But I did spend time loving on that horse. And that was kind of the beginning of where I'm at now. Um, from there, I went to competitively riding in uh, hunter jumper and then from there into dressage. And then I moved into the classical dressage world, uh, which is where I started. Well, actually, back in my hunter jumper days, I Started also exploring the um, working with horses that were coming out of rehab. So like I worked with one horse where he had flipped over when tied and he had broken. Um, so I, they just told me he broke his back at the time. I didn't know to ask like what specifically and where it was probably his withers in area. Um, and he was coming back from that. And it probably should have been red flags to everybody that he was bolting after fences and, and not able to do his flying lead changes after that. Like he probably wasn't fully rehabilitated from that injury. Um, but they looked at it as a behavior issue and, um, I wanted to work with that horse. And so I got a lot of experience, um, helping horses like that during that time. I was also the, the kid that the, 
other kids in the barn when their horses were acting up or being difficult or whatever they would call me to come deal with their horse because I was willing to do it. <laughs> and <laughs> at the time, though, um, definitely a very different approach from what I would do now. Mm-hmm. I was very much like, you got to dominate the horse. You got to make them do it. You know, we got to we got to be the leader. And so I was um, willing to put myself in those situations sometimes where I probably shouldn't have a lot of the time uh, and really force the horse to comply. Um, again, it was coming from a good place because I, I really wanted to help the horse. And that's how I understood based on what my mentors and teachers and trainers had told me that that's how you taught horses. And this was pre social media, pre, um, all the information that we have now, this was still the prevalent, you know, thought processes, you know, got to dominate and it still is, but it's even less so now than it was before. Um, so yeah, so that's, I went into, uh, kind of progressed through my competition years, working with different horses, um, getting lots of opportunities to, um, learn from different horses and with different backgrounds and different behaviors um, that sometimes were problem behaviors. Um, And then I explored classical dressage after a time. And then I, life circumstances happened and uh, I kind of, I had to put my competition type stuff to the side and I was just going to have, you know, quote, recreational (laughs) trail horses. (laughs) Um, And that's where I met my beautiful late mare tiger who really pushed me to be where I am today. Now it was cumulative. Like all of my past horses really taught me different things and it all built up on it, but she was kind of like the final straw, like, okay, now you must learn human. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so yeah, that kind of, that was, I feel like there was different stages. There's different levels of the progress that happened. And then that was the one that really was like, it was a very black and white transition phase that that happened then. And um, that's what started me down the path of like, I really want to help horses in this human world, um, but not through the lens of how I was raised and taught to treat horses, but with what we know now and also with a growth mindset and constantly learning and, you know, learning from the horse, learning from the science, learning from other people and trainers. And so, yeah, that's led me to here. <laughs> So good. Love it. That's beautiful. So if we're talking about helping the horses in the human world and we're working with these horses that have the big dangerous and and scary behaviors and whatnot, what do you reckon is like, what's the first thing that you're looking for? Um, Usually we're looking at lifestyle first and, you know, the basic needs, are they being met? Uh, is my, is the horse, you know, getting enough social interaction? Are they living a species appropriate life? Are they getting enough turnout? Uh, do they have an appropriate diet for the species? A lot of our domestic horses are fed the equivalent of rocket fuel. And then we wonder why they act poorly. <laughs> um, and so once we address you, so that's really like a really, really big one is lifestyle and whether things are species species appropriate. And many, many times it's the case that there's something that needs to change there. And then that dramatically impacts the horse's behavior because now they're happier because they are being taken care of in the way that they, there's as a species that they need. Um, And then from there, we look at pain and um, how are they feeling in their body? What is their body telling us is, you know, uncomfortable? uh, What needs help? 
Um, is it their feet are off, you know, not balanced? Is it that they need body work? Is it something we're not seeing right away? Is it something that's not super obvious? Sometimes it takes a long time um, to really, to really discover where it's coming from. But most behavior problems, those are the, those are the two places I can find them is in <laughs> lifestyle and all that and whether their needs are being met and then uh, a pain source. Yeah, for sure. I definitely find that I have not met a horse yet with a behavioral problem that doesn't have some kind of pain-related issue as well. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, yeah, management of lifestyle, is it's so difficult, you know, to – create the environment that is appropriate for them as well right like making sure that they have enough other horses with them to keep them company and even just like traditional adjustments so we have um you know a barn as well and you know even just your adjustment the horses are separated and and living in in their own paddocks with only able to talk over the fence so it's like you know, how are we going to create an environment for our horses where they are able to have that social engagement within the limitations that we have for how we house them? Yeah. And then it gets even more complicated because nothing's ever black and white and simple, (laughs) but just, just throwing your horse out with other horses isn't going to be the solution most of the time. I mean, it, it can work, but a lot of times then we get resource guarding and aggression towards other horses and they're not getting along. And so the introduction process and that integration of the herd and getting them to a place of, um, social, like where they're socially stable and that they're doing okay. And they're in a, um, a state of homostasis and all that. It takes a long time and very careful management of the herd and selecting of companions. And unfortunately, that <laughs> is extremely difficult in most boarding situations where horses are coming and going. There's limited access to different, you know, enough space or enough resources, or you can't always decide which horse is going out with your horse and you can't decide and control when that other boarder is taking their horse out of the pasture that happens to be your horse's companion and bonded companion. And now your horse is upset and, oh, it gets really complicated. And so my job as a behavior consultant is to help people really find the the things that are causing the most pressure and the most problems and really narrow down on those and then find areas of compromise as well. And just kind of try and make everybody as happy and balanced as possible, even knowing that it's never going to be completely ideal. Even in my own situation, it's never a hundred percent the way I want it. And there's always room for improvement. So it's about finding a good place for everybody without just like totally throwing in the towel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So true. So what I'm hearing from you is like, we're creating a situation where we're setting our horse up to succeed. Like if we're looking at what we're trying to do with our horses, it's a a schooling environment and they're not going to be successful at school if their home life is (laughs) destructive (laughs) or, you know, not creating the biological balances with, you know, engaged social engagement and, the neurotransmitters and whatnot that fire from those social engagement, like that's going to start coming out as behavioral issues because they haven't been able to express themselves. 
Yeah, or even, I don't know if you've ever tried to write an essay while you're hangry, but that's not going to happen either. So like it can come from so many different places where if their needs are not being met and they don't feel safe or able to rest fully, I mean, even just like lack of REM sleep is a larger problem than most people realize. Um, I have a mare that when I introduced a new horse to the herd, she wasn't getting adequate REM sleep because she was nervous about the new horse. And so it wasn't allowing, she wasn't being, she didn't feel safe enough to lay down and get that proper REM sleep, which then was dramatically impacting her behavior. And all of a sudden we saw a resurfacing of behaviors I hadn't seen in two to three years since she'd come to live with me. She was more explosive. She was anxious, all this. And I hadn't seen those in years. And it was because of the stress of the new horse. And then she wasn't getting good REM sleep and just like all of this stuff was bubbling up and accumulating until it was just, you know, spilling over. And, you know, we could, it would have been very, very, very easy to be like, this is a training problem. It wasn't, I, I can try and train that all day long, but if I'm not resolving the core underlying problem, we weren't going to get very far. Yeah, especially with with the issues with them being able to sleep properly. Like we know how difficult it is to do our own emotional agility when we're tired. I had um one of well, our dentist was telling us about one of her horses that she was working with, um, was just randomly falling over and it was housed alone and it was they eventually figured out that it just was because it wasn't sleeping because it was housed alone, it didn't feel safe to lie down and sleep and so as soon as they got a paddock mate for it you know it was perfect again it is like you know it is one of those things like if you look in um you know any kind of like online forum for beginners and whatnot beginners are going out to get their first horse and they are quite a lot of the time their finances would say that they can only have one horse without the understanding and appreciation of what that single horse is going like experience is going to do for the horse. And it's just one of those like challenges that we have to like keep navigating is how we can create an environment for our horses to thrive in. There was a period of time where I had to keep my horse alone and he is quite okay but not like, you know, perfect. He's not happy. Like he needs that social interaction. I'm not enough. I wasn't enough for him. And I was hanging out for this particular pony that I knew was going to be perfect for him. I was hanging out for him to come available so that they could live together. And so it was just like trying to still navigate the fact that he's not supposed to live alone while being such, you know, a horse that is quite stoic. So he's fairly secure within himself. So I was comfortable with him you know, having a short period of time alone, even though it wasn't ideal, whilst like investigating the options for having that, that like network for him. Yeah. And, you know, their horses respond differently based on their learning history and their genetics and a lot of different factors to different environmental stressors. So your horse, when isolated, uh, may respond by becoming a little bit more internal and more just like, okay, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on under the surface that we may not even be able to, well, we can't measure it with the observe, what we can observe, right? We can't really see it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening under the skin. Um, whereas another horse might 
you know, from uh, like we might label it as like lose it or panic. Like they yeah. might start running the fences and screaming and crawling. And I caution people to look at the, uh, I caution people at looking at these two different horses and saying that the first one is okay yeah. while the second <laughs> one isn't. And, you know, things happen. I'm not, you know, calling anybody out or anything, but I just, this is so important to drive home is that just because we can't see exactly how the horse is feeling um, doesn't mean it's not there. And the same happens with pain too. I, I, uh, it's a really big, um, it's very prevalent issue that people will be like, I took my horse to the vet, mm-hmm. got a clean exam. He's fine. I'm like, Ugh, okay. You can't tell me that. <laughs> and you can't yeah. say that for sure. Um, cause your horse can't speak up and say, I'm not in pain. I can't even, and I can speak, um, to, it's like, I can't go to the doctor and have the doctor tell me I'm not in pain. If I'm experiencing pain, I can vocalize. I can tell my doctor I'm in pain. Um, and so there is that opportunity to have that conversation back and forth, but in, even a human doctor can't tell another human they are not in pain. It's only that individual that can say that. So the same thing can happen here too. We can't really say for sure hundred percent how the horse is doing under the surface without being able to have that, um, then be able to communicate with us directly. So this leaves us to really make sure that we are providing what the species needs. And that's the, that's just, it kind of comes back to that is like, no matter how okay the horse seems right now, like it's still so important that they have their species needs met. This is the same conversation I'll have with somebody that tells me that the horse loves or is okay being stalled. They may be, they may be not, and we can't really know for sure. We need to provide them though with the, with what the species needs and what we know that they need. Um, so yeah, so a little tangent for you on that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Beginning of last year, we had, uh, one of the horses get a, um, eye ulcer infection and he needed to get the drops in every two hours. And I started out, uh, sleeping at the barn because we don't live where the barn is and decided to bring him to my place. And I was a little bit worried of putting him in the same paddock as my horse because my horse can be, you know, the one that chases the other horses. So I put him in the separate paddock and he was just like so keyed up and anxious and nervous. He couldn't drink. And so it's quite, it, you know, I remember when I would go and compete my horses and we would be putting molasses in the water because like that change of environment meant that they won't be drinking mm-hmm. for the whole day and um you know seeing him so anxious and stressed and I just like went down and I was with him and I was patting him and I was just like trying to get him to like feel safe enough and after you know, maybe about 10 minutes in the middle of the night just like standing with him and patting him he wandered over to like the water tub and had a drink and I stood over him until he was okay I was like okay you know um we'll try integrating tomorrow with with my horse and make sure that you don't get run out of the paddock so that you know you can at least have that herd support to try and find where we can have you in an experience where you feel safe here and it's like such a you know it's a horse that we know quite well so he's like air quotes behaviors are fairly reliable within the school environment but just that kind of change puts him like so on the edge of his coping abilities that you know, those behaviors become fairly extreme after that. Yeah. This reminds me of, um, my mare. She going back to the stalling, uh, kind of example, she would be one of those horses would be more stoic, but 
we're not really seeing what's going under the surface and you can put her in a stall and she, she moves around she, for all purpose, like from when you're observing her, like if you were to document all of her behavior, she appears very normal in a stall. She eats, she drinks, she rests, she does all the things. Um, however, within 24 hours, she starts to have watery manure and then she starts to colic. Oh, and no. Almost can, every single time I've done it, every single time within 24 hours, we are in a full colic episode okay. and it's from stress. Um, and, but she looks normal on the outside. <laughs> like I didn't with the first couple of times, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> like, I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. And I discovered this, uh, when we were having eye ulcer problems, actually. So that reminded me of it too. Um, she was, she had to be repeatedly treated for them. So we'd have to put her, we put her in a stall doing treatments anyways. And then at one point she had to go to the vet and get like, um, a drip thing into the eye and man, that didn't go very well. Uh, (laughs) we ended up having to remove that eye. She was already blind and it It wasn't the end of the world, but that whole stalling experience and her recovery from that removal procedure and everything, like it was just really bad. And thankfully she's doing great now. She's doing amazing uh, with just one eye. She's fine. But she's just a prime example of how we have to be careful, you know, deciding for our horses what they are feeling and how they are feeling. And we need to try and just do the best we can as far as providing their basic species appropriate needs. Um, and then we can make modifications per the individual because that's definitely a thing, too, where there is an individual need um, or a unique need based on the individual within the species. They're not all completely identical or the same and they have different learning histories and we've we have selectively bred them for a long time and so there's there's differences between the individuals and um but yeah so i always find this super fascinating this is this is why i did uh i went into behavior consulting because i i really enjoy helping the horse and the people and seeing the outcome and how much better they're doing afterwards and how much more um happy they are and just you know now they're getting along and they really understand each other and they're having a mutually reinforcing and very trusting experience and relationship together but also on my own personal side of things it's like a big giant puzzle and I love it I'm like let's find the problems here (laughs) (laughs) there's so many pieces in that puzzle hey it's like understandable how people can get so overwhelmed with like finding the answers and then like you said when you go to the vet and they say no definitely no pain but then you know I'll go in and I'll be like no definitely pain and so (laughs) it's like yeah the pain didn't show up on you know a thing on the x-ray but we know in our own bodies that that pain doesn't necessarily come up in an x-ray either Mm -hmm. um so one of the things that you uh, preach a lot is uh, allowing consent and autonomy in your training. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Everybody kind of has their own experience with what consent with their horses looks like. Yeah. So consent, I recognize as a very human term. Uh, I don't, I can't for, for sure say the horses understand the concept of consent or at least informed consent because with informed consent you know it's like you go to the doctor and the doctor explains how the procedure is going to go okay here fi- sign your informed consent piece of paper we can't do that with our horses unfortunately <laughs> wish i could <laughs> i can't watch i'm like i know horse this event experience will be terrible but you're gonna feel better afterwards i wish <laughs> i could do that but i cannot instead what we can do is create a nuanced and respectful conversation with our horses that is predictable and consistent in 
And that allows the horse to know what's coming next and then provide an answer to us whether or not they want to do it. So for example, if I um, present like a good example of really easy visual is like with the fly spray bottle. Um, If I present the fly spray bottle and they touch the fly spray bottle and then I spray their body with the fly spray, if I do that a couple of times, at first they don't understand what's going on. They just know they're getting fly sprayed. Um, and then they touch it and this weird human wants me to touch this object. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but after a few repetitions, they start to go, okay, step one, touch the fly spray bottle. Step two, the fly spray happens. If I, What happens if I don't touch the fly spray bottle? Well, if the human doesn't fly spray them after they don't touch the fly spray bottle, then now the horse starts to understand they have control over what comes next. If they touch the fly spray bottle, the fly spray comes next. If they don't touch it, no fly spray. And we can take this concept and this process into a very elaborate conversations, which are beautiful to have with our horses. It takes time to build. Um, and this is why I say it's different than the whole, than like informed consent. Um, this is more of a allowing them to control the sequence of events and what comes next and to give us information on whether or not they want to do what comes next. And this is why it's so important that the first step, the step A, is something that we know the horse is really comfortable with. And you could even do something as simple um, as, as like, if you walk up to your horse, like, like, let's say you step up to your horse's shoulder and you wait for them to look at you, kind of just give you a little bit of a side glance, and then you touch them. If you did that over and over and over again, and then eventually they didn't look at you, and so you don't touch them this time, you can actually put them in control of what the start button is. They are doing a certain action naturally, and then you're just rolling with that. So that would be another idea or um, uh, example of a start button. And there's a, so many different ones that you can create. But this is why it's so important to make sure that initial behavior, that initial start button is something that they're very comfortable doing because you need to at least initiate it or offer it the option. They need to be comfortable doing that. And then they can tell you if they want to do the next thing. Um, so I do this throughout pretty much all of my training. I build it in kind of organically through most of what I'm doing. We're just having a back and forth dialogue. Um, and then when I'm dealing with horses or working with horses that have really extreme fears or phobias, just deep rooted traumas, I make very intentional start buttons and we take that process to kind of the next level and make it very intentional rather than just part of the conversation that's happening on a day-to-day basis. It's like, okay, this is a very clear step A. This is a very clear step B. So you know exactly what you are, you know, quote, consenting to. Um, and I know for sure that you're comfortable with what comes next. Yeah, so good. I love that. Uh, we, we in our barn have, um, like we start beginners. We have lots of, um, new and, and young students that come through and, you know, it can be quite taxing on the school horses to be constantly engaging with all these young riders, uh, that aren't always like body aware with what their movements are doing <laughs> around the horses. So our horses, uh, the kids that come in, they get taught that if they want to approach or touch the horses they have to hold their hand out for the horse to target the hand and the targeting of the hand is the consent to approach and and pat and if they don't target your hand you aren't allowed to uh, um, approach them and pat them and 
Yeah. So I find that, you know, especially like on the days, you know, the horses are just not emotionally available to you. <laughs> it prevents the biting and the kicking and, and that kind of thing where, you know, they're giving subtle body languages of tension holding a, about not wanting to be touched um, that aren't read because like, you know, the, the average person doesn't really know how to read horse tension in in that regard and to back off and so of course like the only way then for the horse to say like please don't touch me is to to bite or to kick so um creating that language with the horse which allows them to give you permission to do what you want to do with them means that we don't have to escalate into like what we would consider the more dangerous behaviors where the, the horse is escalated to that point because they don't have the power to communicate their discomfort within the, the moment. I find though, <laughs> when we like are incorporating consent, like uh, especially, you know, for people like us that have come up through that submission based training and the horse will do like what I tell it to do because I tell it to do it. Otherwise I have a naughty horse, you know, that internal adjustment to the horse saying no can create so much conflict in, in people as like, um, yeah, having that place within yourself where you're comfortable with your horse saying no to you and that doesn't mean that it's naughty or that it's a bad horse or you know that you have to like get them in trouble for saying no it's there's such a I think just a difficulty even just in our generation of that happening in relationships in general and we have to get like really comfortable within ourselves within our own ability to set boundaries for ourselves, for us to comfortably hear like where our horse's boundaries are. And then even at that point, the no is not necessarily a no, depending on like how we are appropriately motivating them as well. So like that's like the next hurdle that I see people having after they get over the discomfort of the horse saying no and the horse then starts saying no to everything (laughs) is like how are we going to like engage the horse in, in what we're doing and appropriately motivating so that they are willing participants which again, like, is so challenging to read in the horse as well. Like, one of the things that we work for as congruence is trying to be able to see that that internal state is like aligning with the behavior that they're presenting. And we're not just like forcing a behavior, but their internal state is still saying no. And so then, like, we're also navigating the horses that have been pushed through situations where they've not been allowed to set boundaries and have become quite stoic and just kind of like let us do things to them because that's what they know there's just like so many intricacies with each individual horse of like how you're going to approach that conversation with consent and then also with the individual human like their relationship to consent and boundaries Yes, so much to unpack there. That's it for us this week. Join us next week as Adele goes into unpacking that loaded question. Until next week, happy trails. If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. 
Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you. Especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, Building a Connection with Your Horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. If you want to learn the secret source behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriumovement.com forward slash connection and I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.